This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. And welcome to the Advice Show. From advice to practice management, this podcast will give you UK and global insights into the financial planning profession. I'm Nicola, a reporter at New Model Advisor, and today we are joined by Alex Funk, who is Chief Investment Officer at Schroeder Investment Solutions. So, Alex, hello, and thanks very much for joining us. How are you? Very good. Thanks, Nicola, for having me. Fantastic, fantastic. We're thrilled to have you. And it's your podcast debut, I understand. So even more, even more thrilled. <laughs> exactly. I understand you've, you you joined last year. Um, so obviously, you've had kind of a front row seat, um, you know, as obviously multi-asset funds have had quite a difficult year at times. Um, so I can imagine it's been busy and, and quite, quite stressful at times and some, some sort of asset allocation decisions that might seem quite major have had to be made. Would, would you say that's fair? I think so. And I think if we sort of just take a little uh, sense check as to where we are at this point, right? So if we take the data to the end of June, it's been the worst combined start to equities and bonds in the last 30 years. And that excludes what we've seen in September. And so I think um, a lot of multi-asset investors has always relied on the sort of negative correlation aspects between uh, equity and bonds. And as we know, you know, that relationship has broken down a little bit this year. And I think that's put a lot of investors uh, off guard a little bit because the expectation that they would have had is that their bonds would have protected them when equities get a bit nervous. And let's be honest, this, um, if we take a further macro step back, how we actually got here was just the effects of uh, you know, all the fiscal and monetary stimulus that we saw during COVID, exacerbated by an energy crisis, which is fueled ultimately by uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Right. And so we've just seen this sort of central banks being, you know, sort of slow off the start uh, in 2021, saying potentially inflation is supply side driven. This is transitory. God forbid we still use that word. Uh, this will move through the system. And ultimately, uh, this should wash out. Now, what I think they didn't plan for was pretty resilient labor market. Yeah. So labor market's quite tight. So that's putting upward pressure on wage prices. Uh, and then secondly, you have, you know, this ongoing input cost from an energy price crisis uh, driving inflation as well. And then lastly, demand has not been poor, right? So the U.S. consumer continue to spend. They're sort of winding down their COVID savings. Uh, and all of this has resulted in persistently high inflation. And I think all central banks have now sort of come to the point and realize that you know inflation is probably a little bit more sticky it's probably going to hang on a little bit longer than they initially thought and they now need to react and the market is trying to digest this right so how aggressive do we think central banks are going to be and you can see the market is quite fluid at the moment it only looks at rate expectations so in the summer you know everyone sort of went on holiday potentially uh, everyone gave the the um, gave it some thought to think about oh maybe maybe the fed won't be as hawkish right maybe data points are a little bit softer maybe we can start thinking about rate cuts in 2023 and then september came along and they reminded us very quickly that that's not a possibility we must bring inflation down. Inflation, core inflation, continue to increase. Persistent parts of inflation, specifically in sort of what we call owner's equivalent rent or, or the rental market was, was, uh, was long lasting. And so all of this then resulted in the very difficult uh, September, both for, for equity 
and for fixed income. And I think hopefully that gives you uh, a nice little backdrop into where I think we're positioned today from a sort of macro perspective. And what does market reaction function actually looks like? On top of what you mentioned, obviously, there's been, a, you know, even more kind of volatility for UK gilts that we've seen in recent months and weeks. And that's kind of shocked the market in, in several ways. I mean, and that volatility is ongoing. Um, just to bring up a stat yesterday, we saw that the yield on 10 year gilts was almost kind of a percentage point higher than it had been a week prior. And this kind of volatility with, with gilts we've seen for the past few weeks um, interestingly, um, at the same time, many large multi-asset funds have seen quite a drop in value in the past month. Um, and I just wanted to bring that up, Alex. Um, again, we know they've had a difficult year as it is. Um, but, but my question is, to what extent, you know, multi most multi-asset funds will probably still have some UK gilt exposure. D do you have any thoughts on, you know, w whether there's a link there? To what extent can we attribute this drop um, to their exposure to UK gilts as they've seen such volatility? Yeah, I think gilts is one of the contributors and that move was quite dramatic. But at the same time, we saw you know, European bonds sell off, German bonds sell off. We saw US Treasuries sell off. Uh, we saw pressure on equities because, again, equities are quite sensitive to increase in interest rates because ultimately what the equity investors are saying, as interest rates go up, are central banks going to force economies into recession? Therefore, companies will earn less. Therefore, I make less money. And so I need to start selling these equities off as well. And so what you've effectively described is just this increased correlation between the effects on bonds, one, two, gilts, and then three, uh, into the equi equity market. Now, the gilts one is quite unique in the way that that's potentially um, a loss of confidence by the market to say, well, is there a risk that the UK government spends more than they make? i.e. will this sort of mini budget that was a bigger budget end up not producing the growth targets that they set out? And therefore, is there a risk that I won't get my money back from the UK government? And so ultimately, I now need to price in a high yield. I want to be compensated more for that today for taking the risk that the government is actually uh, increased spending that was completely unfunded at that point in time. So I think that's the dynamic that's really come to, to the sort of multi-asset problem that you've described. Mm, that that's really interesting. I mean, interestingly as well, you know, particularly for the more kind of cautious multi-asset funds, um, some data we have here at CityWire has shown that um, they, in recent months, have really been upping exposure to, I suppose, what they might might consider in this environment safer bond, safer kind of bond classes. So they're things like um, UK and global corporate bonds and global government bonds. But in your view, Alex, do you think they're right to be... Um, increasing exposure to those areas and therefore kind of reducing exposure to gilts. So if we look at just what's happened in yields more globally, right? I mean, even just European yields, if you just pick on them, a year ago, it was like 0.4%, right? What you earn on a European bond. Now in the investment grade space in Europe, you'll earn over 4%, right? That creates opportunity. So the argument is, yes, that's value, but two, uh, is there further upside risk, i.e. can that 4% move to 5%, move to 6%? And that's ultimately the risk that you need to price in. And I think the market is saying at this point, a lot of bad news is priced in. So going from 0.4% to 4%, yes, that's saying there's a lot of negativity in here already. And so this creates a much more attractive entry point for me. And so uh, moving into you know high quality corporate bonds at sort of 4% yield in Europe, close to 6% yield in the US, 
that feels like a better investment place to be, uh, given that you have probably maybe a little bit less interest rate risk. So you can buy what we call shorter duration bonds there. And ultimately, uh, you know, some of the, the gilt market, as an example, is quite long duration. There's lots of uncertainty. We don't know what this unfunded budget looks like at the end of October. Uh, and so why, why do I need to take that risk when I'm being given something else uh, that looks a little bit more certain in the short run? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Alex, what have you been doing in your own kind of cautious portfolios across across the range that um, Shrode's Investment Solutions offers? In terms of in terms of that bond allocation, I suppose. Yeah, it's a good question. So from a fixed income perspective, we've been short duration for uh, well over 18 months now. And so what does that mean? It means we've just taken out the interest rate sensitivity out of the bonds, right, on the go- global government bond space. That means that, yes, as interest rates moves up, our bonds have experienced some repricing, but that has been less than having sort of benchmark-like duration, right? So that's sort of negative mm. effect there. Can I, can I jump in there quickly, Alex? Can I ask, are you able to kind of um, expand on um, why it is that like longer dated um, bond funds are kind of worse off in this environment of rising interest rates, like what that correlation is? in terms of that interest rate sensitivity? Yeah, sure. No problem. So when, when, when you start seeing um, longer duration bonds uh, sell off more aggressively during interest, interest rate increases, it's because your cash flows are dated much further out. And so ultimately, as those interest rates move up, the value of those cash flows become less today because they're so much further out. When I have a, a shorter dated bond, ultimately the cash flows are much closer, right? And so therefore, as interest rates move up, the discount of those cash flows to present value terms is much less. And therefore, my bond is worth more. And that's why you have this sort of inverse relationship. As interest rates move up uh, and the longer duration, i.e. the further out your cash flows are, um, the less value they have today because you're discounting them at a higher rate further out Mm -hmm. into the future. And so that's how the inverse relationship works Mm -hmm. here. And so for us, we've just taken out some of that interest rate sensitivity in the global government bonds have more near-term cash flows. And obviously, as rates continue to reprice on the short end, you know, we went from 2% to 3%. Now we're talking about 4%. So ultimately, you are still being paid, right? Um, It's interesting. We've moved out of a decade of zero rates into a world where you actually get what we sort of call carry or returns on fixed income again. Uh, And so it's an interesting time period. And I think, you know, entry points are more attractive now than they were definitely 12 months ago. But the question, Nicola, is how much more do rates move up, if at all? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, do you think generally investment managers should be looking at kind of moving away from longer dated bonds? Like have the kind of, I suppose, the downsides of holding them lasted a little bit too long, in your opinion? Or what do you think? So I think prior to COVID, that was the only trade that you could make because you knew that central banks would keep rates really low. Uh, and so you had to play duration in order to get any capital gain on your bond, right? Now, I think you've gone into a world where you know rates have moved up really quickly. Um, but at some point, you're going to have to start adding risk in your portfolio again, right? You can't just buy short data bonds forever. Um, and so ultimately, at what point do you start buying longer duration again? Because I would, I would expect most investors to have been short duration in this last time period, right? The last sort of 12 to 18 months, I would imagine most investors were buying short data bonds. Now, um, because central banks were ultimately buying the long data bonds. And so the question is now, when do we start thinking that it's, you move long duration or even just neutral? And so from our perspective, we think that you know, lots of bad news is priced in. September was a large repricing in the market. 
And so we're quite happy to be sort of neutral duration now. You know, we've been short duration. Uh, we're happy to extend that duration now. You know, the 10-year in the US at 4% is pricing in a lot of bad news. And so often you have sort of, you know, yield curves peaking before central banks peak in terms of their rate. The question is just is, you know, is that 425 to 450 where central banks in the US or when the Fed goes and says, okay, that's enough restrictive policy and do we just maintain at this point? Yeah. And that's yeah. the million dollar question, I think. Yeah, I see. And I suppose as investment managers, there's only a degree to which you want to kind of base your um, asset allocation decisions on fiscal policy, on on um, interest rate, you know, predicted rises and falls and things like that. Is that is that the case? It's a... It, it is, but it's also a balance, right? So if you think about your portfolio, you've got multiple levers. So if I'm taking more duration or benchmark duration in my global government bonds, maybe in my corporate bonds, I'll take no rate duration and I'll just take some credit risk. And so I'll buy high quality corporate bonds, short duration. So I've now balanced my fixed income component. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, equity also has duration. And we don't often talk about this, but growth stock. So let's think of tech techie type names, Microsoft, Amazon, et cetera, you know, a lot of their cash flows are further out into the future as well. And so the same principles apply. If rates are higher, they become worth less today than, than they would be in a lower rate environment. And so those are higher duration stocks. And so do I balance my value growth component in the same way to make sure that the overall portfolio from a risk perspective uh, isn't, isn't exposed to idiosyncratic risks? And I think that's the ma massive exercise at the moment. Yeah, really interesting. It's a real balancing act, <laughs> for sure. Um, Alex, I also wanted to ask about income-focused portfolios. Um, I mean, what what has the effect of this increased volatility in, in UK gilts, or as you mentioned, kind of more broadly, um, the bond market, being for income-focused portfolios, where obviously investors are kind of relying more on that dividend yield? So it's obviously made it more attractive, right? So as yields continue to move up, your income component is starting to increase as well. And so, you know, you're seeing an upward movement, one, in dividend yields. Uh, I think definitely post-COVID. I think in COVID, we saw a massive uh, cutting of dividends across the board, rightfully so. Uh, and then on the fixed income component, all of a sudden, like I said, you know, you're getting sort of 4% European investment grade, 55 6% US investment grade. All of a sudden, yield is on offer again. And I think if you're willing to go further down the credit spectrum as well, so if you start looking at some of the strategic bond fund managers out in the UK market, I mean, yeah, sure, there's more credit risk, but 9 10% is an offer now, right, in terms of yields being paid. And so, yes, that's reflective of the risk in there. And yes, you need to consider potential default as we uh, currently most likely are going to move into a recession globally. Uh, those, are, those are things to consider. But as an income investor, your entry points are much better now your capital value has obviously been altered quite significantly. But from a yield perspective, we've definitely seen an uptick across major asset classes. Yeah, okay. So so income income investors should be seeing, you know, quite positive quite positive performance really um from their from the, that bond element of their portfolios. Well the two components. One, you've got the capital component, right? And then you've got the income component. So I think the income component is definitely looking a little healthier uh, than it did before. But I think the same risks exist to the capital component than they do to most multi-asset portfolios. And, and, you know, that volatility needs to be managed. So just to kind of sum up all the areas that we've touched on, um, and in terms of the fixed income element of our multi-asset portfolios, of our model portfolios, are there, are there areas in general that are really looking more attractive at the moment than others? 
Um, are there other kind of, so we know that portfolio managers are kind of moving out of um, emerging market bonds, high yield bonds, um, you know, what, what's looking more attractive at the moment and, and, and what isn't perhaps? What, what do investors maybe not want to see in their, in their portfolios? Yeah, it's a good question. And ultimately, a lot is looking quite attractive in the fixed income space, right? Given this massive repricing that we've seen, um, I think the risk is that you know investors look back at what's happened and therefore think that continues to happen going forward. And yes, surely that risk exists. But I also think that you need to reassess from a valuation perspective where you are. So as I said, I think you know US treasuries at sort of 4% across the 10-year, that's much more attractive than what it used to be before. I think gilts are risky for obvious reasons, hopefully at this point in time, until we have more clarity on how the fiscus in the UK will be managed. I think there needs to be sort of taken a little bit of cautious there. Um, and then again, you know, something we probably haven't spoken about is the, uh, you know, we've mentioned investment grade bonds a few times, but we haven't really spoken about high yield bonds. And so what a high yield bond is, is effectively just moving further down uh, the capital structure of a company, right? Being uh, taking more risk to be paid later than other bond holders, ultimately, or equity holders, uh, and taking more risk from companies as well, ultimately, you know, companies with less creditworthiness and so on. But those yields have moved up quite significantly. Now, the big question there should be, well, what do you think defaults are going to look like? And so this cycle, default rates have been really, really low. Um, you know, we haven't seen a tick up in, in European defaults in sort of a few months now. Um, the market is probably pricing in, you know, in some high yield markets, close to 10% defaults. Now, you know, we're not seeing close to those sort of defaults. Now, the question is, do they come? Uh, and, you know, given the sort of macro view, yes, recession is probable. Yes, recession can happen. But does it look as deep as a 2008 type recession? Um, and I don't and I'm not quite sure that that's really where we're heading to at this point. So, again, you know, those heels are looking quite attractive as well. Um, so across the fixed income yeah. spectrum. And then lastly, emerging markets, um, you know, there's clearly more risks in emerging markets than there is in developed markets. I think some of the challenge in the maybe the emerging markets will be the dollar-based debt. Um, you know, the strength, the strong dollar creates a bit of a challenge for for those emerging economies to go and find dollars to ultimately pay back the debt. Um, so that's one to definitely keep an eye on. And then lastly, I think emerging markets have probably increased interest rates quicker than developed markets. They've been ahead of the curve. And so that could be quite attractive for some uh, local-based emerging market debt as well. But then again, you've got to take uh, take a view on currencies, balance sheets, and so on of those emerging economies. Definitely, definitely. I think it's really interesting what you said about kind of comparing this to other, um, you know, market crises, quote unquote, that we've had, and and comparing, looking at multi asset funds, looking at at that kind of drop, and and the fact that it's not been quite as bad as the, the credit crisis, for example. It's good to kind of have that have that perspective, I imagine, <laughs> for investment managers and kind of advisors alike. Agreed. I think that. The difference here is, is that you're having central banks tighten monetary policy into a rising inflation environment. And that is the crux of the problem. Yeah. So as inflation continues to move higher, or let's let's roll back a few months, as inflation continued to move higher, central banks continue to increase interest rates. And therefore, you had the double whammy effect on both fixed income and on equity, where in most cycles, you have sort of peaking inflation because of rate uh, rate hikes, right? That's slowing down the economy. Where in this cycle, it's all just happened uh, quite abruptly and quite quickly. And that's created some of the challenge between sort of fixed income and equity. 
Definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, Alex, moving back to kind of um, asset allocation decisions, I wanted to ask what what other asset classes, moving away from fixed income, what other asset classes can we expect investors to look at, you know, multi-asset investors to look at um, in their portfolios and think, wow, you know, I'm so glad my investment manager was uh, invested here um, over the past few months, let's say since, um, you know, June. Um yeah, so I think maybe if you stretch it a bit longer into sort of a year-to-date type uh, analysis, yeah. uh, <laughs> I think that, you know, this component that we sort of talk about called alternatives has been quite helpful. Now, I think the risk or the challenge you've got as an, as a financial advisor or as a client is, you know, what is alternatives? What does that actually mean? So I think it's probably worth us spending one minute just saying, well, what do we think alternatives are? And so... Having a definition is quite helpful. So I think for us, we're looking to get sort of half the risk of global equities measured by something called beta, which is the sensitivity of an asset to 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 another reference asset. In this case, it's global equities. And then what we want to do is we want to manage the correlation um, between, say, minus a half and plus a half. So do you want to be inversely correlated to global stocks and bonds or positively correlated and to what extent? And so I think where you've been in a good position this year is being really low beta. So say zero to 0.3, and you would have sort of correlation of sort of around zero, slightly positive, slightly negative. That puts you in a really good place um, because that made you less dependent on market movement. And uh, where you effectively got some of that was in the um, in the trend following space. So in what we call sort of CTAs, uh, you know, computer traded algorithm funds, um, th- these ultimately just used um, market movement and direction, both on the up and the downside in order to capture those specific trends. So they just needed a trend to be persistent. And then they could put on a trade both on the long, meaning when the markets move up or on the short side when markets move down. And they effectively capitalize on that. So CTAs or trend following strategies um, had a really strong year. Um, actually, uh, I forget the numbers, but one of their strongest on 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 record. Yeah. The other place that that was comfortable was sort of an equity market neutral hedge funds. Again, they they would sort of play you know both along on the short side to take out all market volatility and just capitalize on the potential movement of single name stocks or sectors. And so that was quite beneficial as well. I think the other um, the other place of the market that did quite well up until September <laughs> was the uh, was the sort of real asset space. Um, so if you start thinking about sort of renewable energy, infrastructure, solar, wind farms, um, you know that was a good place because you know good good inflation uh, linkage. So you know contracts linked to inflation, therefore you know sort of protected from some of that. One and two, when you're having a worldwide energy crisis, you know, these companies tend to benefit from those uplift in prices. And then lastly, you know, it ticks a lot of um, net zero transmission, uh, uh, decarbonization boxes as well for investors. And so so that was a really good place to be. I think the challenge that you had is a lot of the valuations of them are based off the UK gilt market. And so when we've had this massive repricing in gilts, the discount rates used in some of those um, investment trusts have just completely uh, repriced. And so uh, if the discount rates move up, that effectively means the net asset value moved down and therefore investors started to price some of that in. So it's been a little bit more challenging in the near term, but I think on a year-to-date basis uh, has been has been a good place for investors as well. And those sort of places would have given you um, that sort of half the beta to global equities and uh, non-market dependent type outcomes. To what extent are they kind of 
or were they making up for the losses that portfolios saw this year? Um, given, you know, ec both equities and bonds, very broadly speaking, were kind of down at the same time. So, so a, a basket of alternatives that had a bit of hedge funds, a bit of real assets, a bit of commodities, a bit of gold, and maybe uh, a bit of um, sort of real asset CTAs, uh, that would have been up this year, right? Not up largely, but I mean, if you had selected a few good fund managers, uh, you'd have been broadly flat or slightly positive. Now, in a world where everything is sort of down, you know, 10 to 30 percent, depending on whether you're talking about fixed income or, or equity, that becomes quite attractive on a relative basis. And so I think it's been a good it's been a good alternative, hence the name for for uh, for investors in order to sort of compensate that. But I think alternatives have two sides to them. You know, one is they are risk diversifiers, which is broadly what we've been speaking about now. But it could be return enhancers as well. And so. There are alternatives like private equity, you know, that ultimately has more market beta. Now, private equity has, has struggled this year as well. But at some point where you want to add risk to your portfolio again, you know, you will be looking at probably shifting some of your defensive alternatives or what we call sort of risk diversifiers alternatives into some more return enhancers. And so that might be more infrastructure, you know, which, which carries a little bit more market beta, might be more private equity. Ultimately, you know, there was a place for commodities uh, within portfolio, which adds a bit of risk to your portfolio as well. So they're not just one purpose or one sided. And I think, you know, they can take different shapes depending on, again, what your definition is. Mm. Have your portfolios held private equity this year? No, no. So we didn't have any exposure to private equity, um, not directly at least. So we, we might have had really small investment trust exposure with some underlying private assets, um, but it was, it was small in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Um, one question, Alex, again, to pick up on something that you mentioned, trend following funds. I think I think a lot of our listeners, um, if they took a peek at their, you know, the model portfolios they work with, will see um, maybe a greater exposure to, to trend following funds or will have seen this year a greater exposure to trend following funds. They, there are a couple of big names, I think, in that space that have really, you've seen them a lot. You've seen them a lot around um, Crable Gemini, ML Crable Gemini, I think, is, is one fund that's really popular. Um, but, yeah, how, so, so, my question is, how um, sensitive could we have expected trend-following funds to be um, given the events of kind of the past month? I, you know, what, I don't have a concept of how sensitive they are to movements in the gilt market, um, for example. Is there, is there a correlation there? So remember, the key word here is trend, right? So they need a consistent trend in order to capitalize off the back of that. And so different funds will have different periods of what they consider trend. Right. So some might say 14 day trend or some might say one month trend or some might say, you know, to some extent, a quarter trend. Now, when you have big movements, left, right, left, right, left, right, that's not trend. Right. That's just volatility. That's where hedge funds sort of capitalize uh, where you need this consistent trend is where you had a persistent sell off and fixed income that becomes trend, right? And so all of a sudden you can start picking up on that. So in the guilt market, given that that movement happened in two and a half days, yeah. uh, that, that'd that be quite difficult, I think, from a trend perspective uh, to pick up. Yeah. But if there is a more consistent trend now to say, we think guilts remain under pressure because we don't believe that the government will come across with a credible plan, etc., that's a trend that you can then start putting on in those portfolios and start benefiting on. Um, so the likes of a Crable has a 14-day um, holding period. So it thinks of it in sort of two-week blocks, ultimately. And okay. so... 
Uh, we'll see the numbers when they come out. Um, but ultimately, I think that period might have been just too volatile and too short for them to really capitalize off the back. Okay. And so it's the case that some trend-following funds might have a two, that two-day kind of period and some might have a, a month, you know, a 30-day period. Is that correct? So it is, but it's very unlikely that such a short trend-following strategy will be available to retail investors. Mm, um, and that tends to be more in the sort of institutional space. So Crable have a um, have a shorter trend-following strategy, but it's not available in a usage structure into the UK market. It's managed out of the US, yeah. I see. Okay, okay, yeah. A, re- a really interesting kind of um, asset class to, to watch um, over the next over the next while. Um, Alex, I wanted to finish with kind of a broader question, and, and that is, is there anything you can think of that you have – um, maybe learnt or, or picked up as an investment manager from the events of uh, 2022? Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. And I think the important one for us is just a reminder that, you know, market timing is very difficult and often creates more unhappiness than anything else. And so markets will reprice very quickly. Um, the effects of central banks and governments are are, are are unknown most of the time. And so it just reminds us that, you know, building portfolios to weather the storm is really important. Checking correlations across asset classes are crucially important. Making sure if you're a multi-manager to make sure you have true manager diversification as well. Don't just buy a basket of value fund managers. That doesn't create diversification just because you've got more than one. And then ultimately, um, stay invested, right? Because the moves are so rapid. I mean, just missing some of the plus 3% days we've had will affect your 10-year compounded return so much um, that you actually can't afford to miss those up days. And yes, you'll say, yes, the down days are there as well. But over long periods of time, we're all in the business believing that investments go up over time. And so we need to stay focused on that. And this was just a stark reminder of how uh, volatility creates opportunity, but also reminds us that we have to have a long-term investment framework. You just miss the up days, wouldn't you? I mean, October, the first two trading days of October is up 6%. I mean, th- th- these are not insignificant in a year when, you know, the NASDAQ is down 30. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. What an interesting note to end on. Um, Alex, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast. Uh, and thank you very much, everyone, for listening. If you would like to get in contact with any questions or comments about this episode, um, you can reach out to us on Twitter. We're at New Model Advisor. Or you can reach out to me uh, over email. I'm nblackburn at citywire.co.uk. Thanks very much again, everyone, for listening. This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. 